This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you are guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office, and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another product. With amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded. Our next partner has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted a simple all-in-one solution as opposed to the ever-changing variety of supplements I have been taking for as long as I can remember. Sometimes up to three ramekins a day full of pills and powders trying to find the right formula for peak performance. Now that I've been taking Athletic Greens for a few months, I love it and I will never go back. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take one scoop in the morning on an empty stomach and an additional one in the evening when I'm feeling run down. I've seen such a difference in my own performance that I recently ordered additional AG1 for the rest of my family to use. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and supports better sleep quality and recovery, in addition to mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com contacts. Again, this is athleticgreens.com contacts to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional Welcome insurance. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sport-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, and tactics can cross from one discipline to another. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome back to the Context Coaching Podcast. We are joined for a second time by Gus Arginal, who has returned to his native California as the head coach at Cal State San Bernardino. Coach, thanks for being back on the pod. 
Coach, thanks for having me. I'm going to start off with a thank you because I didn't even tell you this. I was on a job interview this spring and the person interviewing me, I won't say their name or who they were, brought up this podcast and how they had listened to it in length and how they had taken what I had said and actually quizzed me on some of the things that I had said. So not only is this an awesome way to share stuff, but it, like for our careers as coaches, I really appreciate you giving us an avenue to speak and give some of our insight on our career and the profession. So thank you so much. That's awesome to hear. I appreciate that. Sometimes you wonder when you don't necessarily have the followers of the all the smokes and the JJ Reddicks of the world, if it's worth doing, but that story right there makes it worth doing. So that's great. So let's do this. Since we last talked, Hell, take us through the journey. There's been a few stops along the way. So catch us up from the last time we talked on the pod here. I know we had talked a lot about my journey. Let's just go the last 10 years. I was at Cal State East Bay as the head coach for four years, and I loved my experience. I was lucky enough to get asked by Coach Musselman to go up to Nevada with the top 25 program, and, and obviously that was a life-changing experience, being a part of um, some NBA players' careers, making some NCAA tournament runs, and then life changes again, and I went to Cal State Fullerton with Diedrich Taylor, a former Aggie, and one of my longtime mentors and friends and somebody that coached me. And we went through COVID for a year and a half, a crazy experience. And one of the, the best learning experiences, I think, for coaches was that time, as sad as that may be. Um, but I learned so much in those two years. And then randomly, uh, again, Coach Musselman came calling from Arkansas, and I was lucky enough to go there for two seasons um, we won 28 and 25 games, Sweet 16, Elite Eight. And uh, it was just, again, another awesome experience in this co coaching journey. We had the number two recruiting class one year. Um, so just to be a part of that change in the college basketball scene, that's when NIL started. That's when the game really changed in, changed in college basketball. And so a great learning experience from recruiting, coaching, scouting. And then I'm lucky enough to be sitting here as a head coach again, Back in the CC2A with all those familiar faces, those legends of coaches at Cal State San Bernardino. And I couldn't be more fired up to be back in California and speaking to you and to be back as a head coach. So thanks again. Thanks for catching us up. So we're going to dive right in here. So we talked when you were at Fullerton, you left to go to Arkansas with Coach Muss. And generally speaking, we talk about what is something that you needed to figure out right away. So number one, obviously moving to Arkansas. Give me a five-second soundbite on the the difference, let's call it. We're not even going to do a comp, but just the difference between being a California native, born and bred, living <laughs> here, to moving to Arkansas. And then I want to know about the basketball, right? What did you – obviously, you'd work with Muss at UNR, but yep. being in the SEC is a totally different thing. So what were some of the things that caught you out of left field that you had to navigate? And what were some of the things that actually were familiar and consistent regardless of level? Number one, you've never seen a fan base that's like that of an SEC city. And they're almost all the same other than Nashville, let's say. Uh, they're all about 100,000 people. And everything revolves around that arena, that stadium, that gym, whatever it may be, and that baseball stadium. It's an insane environment, the amount of care factor that people have. In Arkansas, there's no professional sports. You are the Bulls, the Lakers, the Warriors. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. I've never been around a program where everybody knows where you are all the time. And that was a, a big learning experience. My first day recruiting, suddenly on the internet, 
coach Gus Arsenal is at this gym. He's at this place. And it's almost like you're getting tracked and it really puts you in a different limelight or light, but it also makes you respect the responsibility so much that these schools with long traditions have with a fan base. But to your second part of the question, it goes back to the same thing. When you're out recruiting and you have a San Bernardino Coyote on your chest, the Arkansas Razorback, they may know it a little bit better because of the national trademark that it is, but it's about the relationship piece. And so we had the number two recruiting class. And I will say that all that came down to was the ability to build relationships and have the people really trust you, share a vision with them, want to be developed. You're just selling maybe something a little bit different. Some young men you're selling, being able to play professionally, hopefully. To some that are the number one, two, three, four player in the country, you're selling, can we make you a lottery pick? And this is why we can help you do that. So it's just a different way of going about it, but the same thing and to their families, treating them the right way, getting them a degree. But I think when it comes to the basketball side of it, it's a different level of development and maybe some of their goals and aspirations are a little bit different. No, that makes perfect sense. And while you were talking and how you sell recruits and what that looks like to help them along their journey and how your program can do that. Cause ultimately that's what the relationship is about. What jumped into my head was if I remember correctly, before the transfer portal madness that exists today, coach Musk was like on the front end with you in regards to getting transfers versus trying to build through a traditional freshman class. So how did that preemptive tactic help Arkansas when you were there? And now as you come back to Sam Bernie, how do you feel positioned? How, how do you feel like you, you know how to manage that in a way in which maybe it gives you an advantage? That's a great, that's a great question or statement. When I was a head coach before at Cassidy's Bay, that was when you had to call your compliance. They had to then contact whatever school it was and say, do we have permission to speak to this student athlete? And when you were a coach, I always tell young coaches now, that's when you really had to have a Rolodex, even though Rolodexes aren't around anymore but you had to have contacts. And I think it was really hard for young coaches at that point to recruit transfers. And then I go to Nevada and really that came out of necessity because of budget. Our mindset was at the end of the year, instead of recruiting somebody all year long, where we're flying all over the country and trying to see them multiple times, we find somebody that's transferring. We go out and see them one time, we get them to campus and hopefully we're able to sign them. And if you think about it that way, it was really ingenious. And at that time, Nevada, Iowa State were the two top doing that, Fred Hoiberg and Coach Moss. And so you fast forward, I took that with me to Fullerton and Coach Taylor's done a great job with transfers that helped him get back to the NCAA tournament again for a second time. And then at Arkansas, with how the transfer portal now has turned it into an every year change revamp of your, your roster, it's imperative that you know how to do that to be able to take in an off season, get five to seven players. And then for me this year, I had, I signed 10 players from June to July in one month, obviously with my assistant coach. And, and I think it really prepared me for this opportunity at Cal State San Bernardino. And again, I think we brought in some really quality student athletes, quality people in a short amount of time, but I wouldn't have been able to really function that way if I hadn't gone through those experiences over the last seven, ten, seven to 10 years. Yeah, I would agree with that. And ultimately, that early groundwork probably puts you guys at the forefront of it, which has obviously paid dividends. What I'm curious about, and I've been kicking this around with people over the last month as I talked to our high school students about what the landscape looks like in college sports these days, what would you say is the impact being felt on the non-top 150 high school athletes due to 
in your words, I can go watch somebody one time who's already playing collegiately and get an assessment for them where with a high school kid, you're running around trying to actually see if they can play. It's really impacted and it's impacted not just those 150 and out. It's impacted the top 100 as well. Colleges at every level are passing on high school student athletes because of it. Uh, I think it's really sad. Obviously coming out of high school, I was from Dale Sal and I'm probably not getting recruited by UC Davis or school X as much as I was right now. If you fast forward, I don't want to say how many years ago that was, it was about 25, 26 years ago. Um, what you have to do is you have to find the right program that really values a high school student athlete. If that's the case that you're in. Um, and I think it's school by school. It's coach by coach. I do think though, as everything sways, uh, I think the smart coaches right now are going to go against the grain and find those young men that are available, young student athletes that are available, because the indicator that in our research, when I was at Arkansas, the teams that made the real runs consistently, if you look at those teams, they have continuity. And they have guys that have been in their program multiple years, and most of them have started as freshmen. Now there's a transfer that trickled in here and there, but the ones that have consistency are the ones that have really won at an extremely high level, the Villanovas, the North Carolinas, obviously the Dukes that are getting one and dones, but again, continuity allows you to win at the highest level. That goes all the way back to your time with Greg when you guys were dominating the league based on the Davis model, which is we're just playing fifth-year kids against your 18-year-olds, right? So how do you adapt that now for the modern era? 100%. You have to find student athletes, young men that are willing to develop. It's funny too, because Greg Clink just called me. So I'm a little bit nervous that that name just popped up on my phone here. And you just said that. So he's- That's because they're always listening, Gus. They're always out there. The great ones are always listening, right? So that's a shout out to coach Clink. But the one thing that you also have to, you can't go in between, in my opinion, um, with this. And so even when I was at Cal State East Bay, I look back at it then, I was really into redshirting out of necessity as well. It's really hard for college players to graduate in four years. If they're not in summer school, it's almost impossible. So they need an extra quarter, an extra semester. And so I was into redshirting. I think the biggest thing as a coach right now, and you said every level is what's your plan and why are you doing it? Are you taking high school players uh, because you want continuity and you want to develop are you taking them because maybe your college campus is more set up for that? Maybe you're taking transfers because the setup is better for you in your location, where you are, the type of coach that you are, the style of play. It all has to fit. I think the biggest thing is finding what you want to do and what your blueprint is for success, sticking to it. Because if you try to go in between and change, that's where I feel the problems can hit you. And again, like at an Arkansas where I'm coming from, we were taking the best transfers every spring. We were trying to find one or two of the best high school student athletes we could find because we did take six freshmen one year and we felt like that hurt us. Though we went to the Sweet 16, we came in 10th place in the SEC. People just don't think about it because we made a run, but there was a learning curve that took till January, February to where we were our best. Okay. So taking that experience that you just articulated, what would you say since it's been... I don't know, I'm forgetting the math on this, seven, eight years since you've been a head coach and now you're sliding back over in the to the decision-making chair. What would you say you picked up along the way that you didn't have the first time that you're excited to deploy this time around? And the list is probably extensive, but go ahead and share what you can with people that are trying to make the same move. It, it's, and what you just said is extensive. That, that whiteboard back behind you right now would be filled up about a billion times. And 
it starts from managing your roster, how much you think about that. It goes to recruiting. And like I said, the blueprint of what you want to do, knowing that blueprint will probably change and really understand the university that you're at, the school that you're at. Style of play, fitting the level that you're at. I always say this, there's a Bob Seger song. I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. I wish I did know then what I do know now. I'm going to flip it. One year I wanted to get bigger. And I remember I was at East Bay and we got a lot taller. But then those tall guys got to guard those little guys. And think about this, a year later from going from East Bay, I go to Nevada where our center was 6'5", 6'6", and we're playing against Mo Bamba in the NCAA tournament. And I'm laughing at my younger self three years ago that was so worried about being tall when it's really about length, toughness, and how you play and how you teach your guys how to defend and what you want to do and implore those tactics on the other team. I think that understanding yourself as a coach what you really want does change. We were just talking about this offline 10 years ago, what I was thinking about my life is much different now. And my family's at a much different age uh, than, it, than it was then. My guys could barely walk back then. And they were running around my gym and couldn't dribble the ball. Now they're in high school. I think so much changes. I would say this too, the number one thing, I know myself much better. And so I think you have to be self-reflective on the fact that um, I was very confident at 31. I'm 40. I got the job at 31. Then I'm, I got it this year at 41. I'm now 42. Um, I knew that I was ready to be a head coach, but I didn't know who I was exactly as a head coach. I knew I could run a practice, but how did I want that practice to truly look? And how was I going to be on a bad day? I just know myself so much better now. I'm way more confident in certain situations. And as every day in coaching is a new fire, new situation. And now I've gone through another decade of those situations off the floor, on the floor, handling social media, everything. I think I'm just a much better version and have a little bit more salt on the side of the, the head now, which helps you, I think, with experience. And so you can't teach experience. So number one, father time is undefeated. Obviously you're seeing that now and you've always been able to avoid the aging as I've watched you grow, but it's coming for you, my friend. Uh, okay. Number two, I know myself better. Talk to me about that. What do you know? What have you learned? Who are you as a head coach versus who you were at one point? And how did you get to that point? I know the things that I can't deal with. I know the things that though, when you're younger, you think you can coach everybody and that you can change all, all these players, people, and you can really impact their lives. I believe that's why I coach. That's why we coach. That's why we're teachers of the game and hopefully impacting players' lives. And But I do know this, that my job is not to fully change it. It's to impact it and help them uh, be the best version of themselves and, and put that impact on them. So I, I know now that there's certain type of people that I struggle with. And I've worked in the last 10 years of being better about coaching those type of people. A quiet guy used to really, I used to really struggle with it. I'm a raw, high energy, and that's how I was as a player. And I used to expect that every guy was like that. Much better at coaching somebody that's more introverted now. And that's an important piece of coaching your team differently. I hope that our guys understand that. I think I walk around with a little bit more of an understanding of confidence as a leader now because of your experiences. You Again, when you won games in certain situations and you've gone through this, you know why it would work and uh, why it wouldn't. I think the guys that you coach feed off that when it makes them, uh, I always say one of the greatest strengths of, of really good coaches is when you walk in a locker room or as an assistant coach, you're working for them, you feel like you can't lose. 
And you you probably felt that when you were sitting in the locker room with Coach Williams back in those good old Davis locker rooms. Coach Williams is going to figure out a way to win. I feel that. And so I hope that now I can uh, help our guys with that feeling, our staff with that a little bit better. Not that answers your question, but going on another tangent. But that's just something that I think you you gain more. And that's being around a coach like maybe Eric Musselman, Diedrich Taylor, learning from them. And then all the assistants and all the people that they've taken from, they become your book as well. Like, think about this. I always say, I haven't just worked for Diedrich Taylor. I've worked for Herb Sendek, even though I haven't worked for him. That's who Diedrich worked for 10 years. Eric Musselman coached with Mark, Mike Fratello. He's coached with Hubie Brown. He's coached with his father. He's coached with the best of the best. And so I'm taking a little bit of a, a tidbit from them and now taking it to my coaching as well. And I think that's something that us as coaches, we don't look at. I just worked with Keith Smart at Arkansas. He's a three-time NBA head coach, a warrior legend, a Sacramento King legend, and just all of his stories. He worked for Eric Spolstra. So all those little things that you take that build into who you are, that help to build you as a man and as a coach. That's a great point. And one of the things that was shared with me in the last year or two from one of my mentors is his grandmother used to tell them that you can go and get knowledge out of books, but you can't get wisdom. That comes with time. That comes with experience. And you're just naming, not to name drop, but these people you've been fortunate enough to be around to gain wisdom from over the last 10 years since you were last in this chair. And you can't get that out of a book. You get that by being a fly on the wall. You get that by engaging and having conversation and building relationships, which you started at the beginning of this with. And it was really funny when you said, I've learned what I can't deal with. And if you go back and listen to DT on the pod, that's exactly what he said, however many years ago when we did that, because that's a sign of realizing how to simplify what you can and can't do, how to, like I joke up here where I feel like I've hacked coaching in regards to there are certain things that we're going to do that's going to give us the best chance to win. And I don't get lost in the noise of all the other million things you can do, but it only works to a certain degree, right? But there are ways in which you can hack it. And so from that, all to say, what are some of the best pieces of wisdom that you have gleaned that you're willing to share as part of this journey that you rely on all the time, right? We got our little catchphrases, we got our little things, but it's, yo, these are things that I learned from this person that have been transformational in my journey. There's a lot. And and one thing that you're saying, if I'm going to speak out to coaches is you just don't know when you're learning too. You think you're just there. And I'm giving an example of that. I leave Cal Cities Bay and I go to Nevada and I'm, it's my first week on the job and we went on a foreign tour. And we're in Costa Rica. There's literally not one person in the building other than the teams, the refs, and the coaching staffs. And so I'm all fired up. We're playing, coaching some really good players. And the ball goes out of bounds. And I'm like, I'm yelling, it's off the other team. And suddenly Musk whips his head around. He goes, are you 100% sure? And this is our first interaction in the game. And I say, I'm not. And he goes, you can never go at a ref unless you're 100% sure. And I always just laugh at that. Like, we're in Costa Rica about that. The guy probably did not speak English that we were, that was ref in our game, but that's an NBA thing. And so that's something like, again, that's not the point, but just understanding that you're always learning. I would say that one thing is team teammate self. In the Navy, they sometimes say ship, shipmate self. You are, your, you are only here because you have a team. You're only here if you're in the Navy because you have a ship. And understanding that's the most important piece, as simple as that is, but I think for teams, 
understanding that you can only really be a player if you have a teammate, if you're a great teammate, and then you got to worry about yourself third. That's something that we talk about a lot, but something that I picked up along the way. You mentioned Diedrich Taylor. One of the things that I think is probably taken the most from him that I always think about is the number one indicator of success is self-awareness. And I think for all of us, it's really important. I think I've become more self-aware and understanding. I think you have not ego-less, but less ego. I think it's really hard to not have an ego coach. That's what makes you great. I know you, I've known you, I've known you for 25 years. You've always had a little bit of swagger to you, coach. And so you, you're confident. That's why players want to play for you. But less of that ego is important. Um, and I think Diedrich talking about self-awareness, it helps us as players and coaches be better at what we do. I think that the, the big thing too is you can always do more, but that doesn't mean you always have to. Um, and I think for me, I've learned that Coach Muss is a nonstop guy that wants to always think of new ways. I think you just said something is figuring out what it is that I want to be really good at and not worrying about all the other things. I think I've gotten better at that. I think it's still hard though um, as coach, but again, you can do so much, but you have to choose what you really want to do. And then like we have all these like themes for our team, whether it's work ethic, accountability, trust. I'm going to go back to one that I think gets overlooked. I think I heard Coach Pribble talk a lot about it on his uh, podcast with you is joy, fun. He talked about, I think something maybe his dad had said to him, if you don't have joy, you don't have fun. That's a huge piece of it for me. I just don't know how successful you'll be in this business or as a coach or as a team, because at some point it'll be miserable because of everything outside of you. And if you're miserable every day showing up into that, then it's not going to be an experience that you want to be a part of. So just a couple of those tidbits. But I, like I say, I, I learned from, I think I learned from this podcast and, and steal from all of the, the coaches that I hear from uh, as much as any. But again, I go back to one last one as always. And I've said this before, as I'm about running your own race. And, and as you can see, my journey is very unique in coaching. And some people are probably like, this dude is insane for the reasons why he's gone to these places. But Again, you're running your own race and you know why you're doing what you're doing. And if the main thing is the main thing, which is the young men that you're about, it doesn't matter where you're at, what level, it's about impacting their lives and teaching, winning and helping them become that version. And so I think that's just, you got to have that base constantly. And I think, again, I've always kept that knowing that, but it's been a hard lesson to learn. Well, yeah, you mentioned that on the last one and I've stolen that from you as I counsel students. And athletes, it's ultimately stop looking to the right and left. And that's something I took directly from you. And it's funny that you mentioned all the places you've been, what people may think, and they didn't even get the full list of what came before those 10 years, right? <laughs> so it's, I think that's such an important lesson of what you said. You got to know yourself. You have to figure out perspective, right? As Diedrich said, self-awareness. And I think for each of us and then anybody that's listening, the more open you are to being vulnerable and acknowledging that, hey, I just don't know. And I got to figure that piece out. Like you said, I'm coming to a new situation. I have to evaluate how are we going to play? What's right for this time? I learned at East Bay, I wanted to be bigger. Then I go to Nevada and we were just smaller. So it's like this whole thing of we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. We're trying to figure it out with the best information we have at the time. And if we could go back and do it over again, yeah, of course we would be better, right? That's hindsight's always 2020. But on that note, what are some of those self-awareness pieces that have become evident since you left Fullerton that are going to serve you well that you lean on now that you didn't have before? 
There's too many to, to go down. I think the number one thing is as a coach now, and my wife says this a lot, is I have to, you have to mentor your coaches too. You have to coach the coaches constantly. And I think I could have done a even better job of that my first time around. One thing now that I think will serve me better too is I respect my family probably even more than I ever have. My family, the journey that my family's taken with me and coaching and with our jobs, everybody's job affects their family. We were driving across the country and my son said, gosh, it'd be so cool to be a coach. My son, Bo, was 14 and my wife looked at me and she's like, "That's the, this is the time right now where you say it may be cool or it may not be cool. And I hope you're going to say it may not be. And I say that laughingly, but like truthfully, our adventure, our journey has really opened up a lot of doors. We've made the craziest amount of friendships, but it's also like the coaching side of this can really challenge your family. And so I respect my family. The evolution of me is re respecting that and understanding that way more than I did 10 years ago. I think that might be the biggest piece of it for me too, is it will serve me better because I think I understand my coaches better. I said, coaching the coaches, family time, understanding that piece of it for your staff is so important. And I've been really lucky. I've worked for great people throughout my career. Um, again, I've had, I think, 11 different stops and 10 different head coaches I've worked for. So that's, if you can only imagine, that's a lot of different family men. But I think that it's always about how you treat people and understanding how to push and challenge your staff, organize your staff, but also understand people that have family and how to respect that and how to understand what they're going through at times and really appreciate the efforts they're making for you and your program constantly, because it's just like players. You can push and challenge, but you also have to love and build up. And I think that's what makes like this experience so much better. And I hope my evolution, like you talked about, is helping them get to where they want to go, just like my student athletes or the players, while we're trying to do that as well. Yeah. And I think that is something that we gain wisdom on as we get older and our families are now at a place where they have opinions. And to the point that you shared off the record of your son asking if we could live in a certain place, right? And it's, yeah, before that, it was just, they're coming along for the ride and yep. it was somewhat dictatorial. And now it's no way they actually are real people now. So I have to take them into account. I also want to mention what you alluded to, but didn't necessarily say, which is for coaches out there listening, what is your stage and station at this point? And how is that different than it once was? When we talked about, you're no longer in a place where you're chasing any particular job. It has to fit for the other three members of your family more so than you. Like you may be interested, but it might not work out for them. Talk a little bit about how that shift has impacted your decisions over the last couple of years versus the first couple. And it doesn't have to be long, but just I think it's good for people to get that perspective, especially someone that's in SEC at a very high level and what all that looks like. Yeah, I think each year that you go through coaching, if you're not evaluating where you're at in your life and where you're, if you have a family where that family is at and what's good or or not great for the family, then you're not, you're, you're giving yourself a disservice by, by not doing that. I think I've always done it. The one thing I've never been afraid of the challenge of it. And I've always wanted maybe more with that and trying to see, uh, maybe it's the underdog. Like, I didn't know if I could play at UC Davis if I was good enough. And then you get there and you're trying to show that you can do it. Um, and, and again, maybe it's your dad telling you, hey, if you're going to be a coach, 
He's a, he's a cardiologist. He's this type of a doctor. You better be the best. And I think finding out what does the best mean for you, the, the simple thing that everybody always says is what does success mean to you? And I think I've always been trying to search for improving, getting better, challenging myself and trying to have that fit your family. And to your point, like I said, just being quite honest, like this last four to six years of our movement has been super hard on our family because my boys are 14 and 12. And where I was in my career was you're at the SEC and I talked to you about this. It's as close as you can be to the NBA because you're playing against NBA players every single day. You're recruiting the best players in the country. We recruit the number one player in the country. You're doing all those things you talked about, flying on charter planes and private jets to go recruit and do all those things. And it's uh, an unbelievable experience. Um, but I think for me, it was also trying to find uh, an in-between of where you could live somewhere where you're super excited about living in a place that can be really successful and has tradition. You can treat your student athletes really well, like you do at other places and have them feel the feelings of legit college basketball. And then combine that with being around people that you love, care about in your family. And I was really lucky that Cal State San Bernardino came around because I had other opportunities, but I just always felt when I left Cal State East Bay, I was gonna look for a place where I could really win and be successful and have the opportunity or the chance to do that. And that fit who I was. I also like the water too. So I'm not going to lie and say that I don't want to ever go to the ocean, but to your point too, it, it had to fit our family coming back to Southern California really fit. Um, but like you said, everybody looks and says, why would they go here? Why would they do that? And I also love being a head coach and I love controlling my own time and being able to say, if I have to miss, it's because I know I'm going to miss. Sometimes you can't control that as much. And that is the level. It's not so much who you work for. When you're recruiting the number one player in the country, it's different than recruiting other players. So um, that takes its toll on you. But I couldn't be happier. And I've been very lucky that later on in my career, I was able to experience those levels and not early on because I appreciate it much more now. Yeah, I would imagine that is very true, right? It's getting your master's degree 10 years after your bachelor's degree where you actually cared about being a student. It's a whole different mm -hmm. deal, right? You know, you just said it. <laughs> Arizona State, I was getting my master's and I did not appreciate the opportunity that Rob Evans gave me. Now yeah. I see how hard it is to get a master's. Yeah, yes. no, no doubt. Let me ask this question. It, usually I ask, what are some of the things that you would take with you that are the best things you do in your program? And you mentioned some of those before, and, and maybe you have some more that you want to share with others. But what I'm actually curious about are what are some of the things over this journey that you have learned that, you know what, we're not doing that ever again when I'm in charge. <laughs> <laughs> without throwing anybody under the bus, but like you've seen a lot, not just at Arkansas or Fullerton or Reno, but also in regards to the people you're playing against, the people in other programs that are at your school. What are some of the things where you're just like, that is definitely going on the not to-do list? One of them for sure is long meetings with the players. And you have to have them at times, but if you can limit, and again, the best probably limited to 10 to 15 minutes of a meeting every time. But if you can limit one to 15 to 20 minutes, that's 20 minutes is your long one or 20 to 30 minutes, like 30 minutes is probably your cutoff. I really think that's something that I've tried to do a better job of um, and seeing how that works. And then also the value of planning out your practice so that there's some ebbs and flows. I think that one thing as a coach Everybody in America plays at the end of the day. That's what everybody does. You, does. you build up to playing. 
And so something that I really have tried to incorporate is playing earlier in practice because they're fresher. They're, they warm up for 15 or 20 minutes and then they play a game. And so I'm trying to maybe incorporate that because everybody for the most part does that they spend the last or the first hour and a half doing this. And then the last 20 to 15 minutes doing that. So that's something that I'm trying to do a better job of that I've been around where sometimes that doesn't always work. And I think that I've always been really direct with communication, but I think the longer you wait to be direct, the harder it is for your team. And over my experiences, the earlier that the trouble water is there and your ship's got to sw- got to float the better and you may not feel that so instead of waiting and prolonging and keeping something alive with a player or a situation it's much more direct and much it's much less emotional and so that's something that I really learned as well I'm an emotional person and so I hate saying this but you have to sometimes cut that off and you have to turn a little bit into a cold heart at times when you're having some of these conversations so that you can get the message across and make your student athletes understand that this is the academic business um, accountability piece of it that we have to handle. So I'm tr- those are probably three or four of them that you have to make sure that you dial into. I always meet a lot with players. I actually meet a little bit less with them now, but I'm more direct and it's more meaningful, I think, now that I do it. I used to meet every single Friday. I don't do that. I do every other week. And the week that I don't, it's an academic meeting with their coach more than I sit in on it. Got it. No, I like those. And I got a couple follow-ups and I'm trying to decide if I want to ask those now or go back to my other question. So uh, yeah, let's follow up on two things. Uh, Number one, keep short meetings. Great. Love it. I think a lot of times, especially with this generation, the attention span isn't going to be great. Mine isn't great. At the end of the day, we're just spinning our wheels. So I like that a lot. Um, The second piece on that is my follow-up question is how do you approach pregame and postgame knowing that you've been around and mentored by some people that go super deep in the weeds on some things and then some others that are just like, hey guys, ready, let's go get them. And so I've been real bullish the last few years after listening to this on a podcast where like, we don't do postgame meetings. It's, hey, great job, celebrations. Okay, we're good, see you tomorrow. But I don't know like how that translates and where you're at on that. 100%. I think less is more again. I think that I look at it from a player standpoint as much. I think that's one thing I've learned in the last 10 years is the players know at that point when they walk into the arena, an hour and a half before, you you can remind them. I, I value practice much more now. 10 years ago, I valued it, but it was more boom, we're going to get through this. I want to make sure they know how to do everything. By the time you get to the arena, it's go time and we're rocking and rolling. I do love something that I got from Coach Musselman. He has a pregame motivation every single time. And when you watch him on the floor or on social media, you go, this guy's super serious. But the one thing that he has a unique ability to is make it fun pregame, which is weird. You think this guy's so serious, this guy's fired up. I love that. It broke the tension. It also made the coaches actually think outside the box. It makes you look like a dork. It makes you look like I'm not that cool, even though it, it's a very intense piece of time. This We value the locker room more than anything. So to walk in there and see him dressed up like a whatever one day before a game, that makes you as a player go, okay, 
Like we got to laugh a little bit, even though we're about to play Kentucky, right? Post game, short as possible. And I think what to you to your point, you hit on two or three of the positives, two or three of the negatives, and you walk right out of that room. You give them this, and you go because the longer you stay, the more that that blood rises and your energy goes. And I think that one thing too that that is really hard, and we've talked a lot about it at our time in Arkansas, Nevada and Fullerton in the last 10 years is it's really hard walking into a locker room after a win and seeing people upset. And so that's going to happen. It's going to happen in life. And I think you have to address that later on and teach them that lesson. And then as a group, you can talk about it, but shorter is better. I do like pregame to mix it up a little bit. I don't know if I'll be as creative as we were there and have all the props, but creativity helps. No, I love that. And the second thing I wanted to ask you is you brought up Practice planning. And I, you listened to the Pribble episode and I asked Prib, it was like, hey, when's the last time you played five on five to start practice? And he was like, you mean after we stretch and warm up? I was like, no, we rock in and here we go. We're playing five on five. And he's like, never. It's a good idea. And, and my thing was like, cool, whatever. You don't have to do that. But yes. how are you thinking outside the box to what you just said to do something that the kids want to do? Right. Because what they want to do, they want to play, they want to do drill work. So how are you building that in and, and creativity and other thoughts like that maybe you learn? over the last few years that you're looking forward to implement? I think the coming up with, it, it's not so much drills, but having, like you said, you're not afraid to take a chance. Just like a coach wouldn't be afraid to run his own for one possession or run and jump. You have to have a little bit of a gambler in you in terms of as a coach. And I think with practice planning, you have to do the same thing. Like, why can't you warm up playing horse or knockout or whatever my kids call it, thunder or whatever that lightning? Why can't you play dodgeball why can't you do something like that to do whatever it is and i think that making the simple complicated is really important in everything you do for one minute we used to do something called one minute lobs so suddenly you blow the whistle one minute lobs everybody runs to the basket they know where they're going and for one minute everybody's throwing lobs and we would do one minute closeout. we would do one minute jump to the ball we would do 30 seconds yell i got ball and each guy would do it in a row. And I think taking all those little pieces of it and throwing those into practice, like you said, coming out to practice and throwing them into a five-on-five -five session, us coaches get scared because we're always worried about, are they going to get hurt? Are they warm? They've been doing this their whole life playing, right? We've all been playing. We've all done it. Mixing that in early. Also, I just think how you create what they're learning without them even knowing they're learning how you're creating an advantage or a disadvantage in every drill, why you're doing it. I really do it every time we start a drill. This is why we're doing it. Every, almost every single time. Hey, we're doing three on three. I call it Mavericks drill. It's a closeout drill. This is why we're doing it. We want to get to the blue line every single time being help side. That's the only reason we're doing this. And then they focus on it. You know that they can only handle, and we can only handle as coaches. Sometimes one thing to focus on. I would add that to it. I explain why we do something almost every time we do it. Um, and I wouldn't have done that before. I would say we do this drill because this is what we do. But that's it. I think that's the shift with this generation, especially, is they don't they're not combative in wanting to know why. They just want to understand what's going on. And we were in, I think, the pivot of shifting from the dictatorial, do it because I said so, to the wanting to understand so we could have greater buy-in, right? To now it's like you better tell them right at the beginning or you're gonna get it at the end. So you might as well figure that out. I was smart enough not to ask it at practices back then because I knew that wasn't good for me. I just had to enter the ball at the right place and get out of the way of all the players. 
or actually going to make the shots and not mess it up for Jason Cox under the post, right? So yeah, they're, they're much more um, of an understanding. And then I think as coaches, you have to understand too that when you do try to be creative, you start a drill with a disadvantage and a guy driving down the slot and you have to come over and help and go vertical and kick out and X out. You better explain to them that we are simulating that somebody has been beat on this drive. And we're simulating that on the strong side corner, we're not giving up a three. And that's why this guy isn't rotating. You have to really explain early on so they understand it. And then once they do that, they're really smart. They pick it up because they watch so much more than we did when we played. Think about how much more basketball is at their fingertips. They can Google everything that you look up. Seriously, look up everything that you talk about every day. They can put in X out drills and they can watch 30 of them on the internet. So I think you have to really be specific about how you explain. Let me ask this. What have you learned from your athletes since you have made these shifts over the last couple of years? And I ask that because I'm 48. You said you're 42. We've been doing this a really long time. And just in the last two years, have I gotten over that, let's call it fear of somebody getting hurt? Uh, that you mentioned, because when you said that, I laughed to myself because I'm like, all right, let's talk about this for a second, coach. You and Bo go to the park to play pickup. How long is he warming up? How long are you warming up? You're just rolling them out and going, right? So what are these kids doing when they're not in a controlled practice? And the, the reason I bring that up is because I've got a kid who's a freshman playing baseball at Villanova that was the county athlete of the year. He was football, basketball, baseball. And during baseball season, he's in the gym playing pickup basketball. And I'm like, dude, get out of here. This is like your main sport. Like you need to coach. This is what I do, man. I'm not going to not play. And it was like, oh, okay. I guess if that's your approach, then like, why am I worrying about it? And 99 times out of a hundred, it's not an issue. So do you design for the 1% or do you design for the 99? And I don't know the answer, but it's something that like, I've definitely shifted my approach on where back in the day, it was like, no, you can't go skiing. Absolutely not. It's basketball season. And I was like, whatever, man, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. Yeah. I think you have to, I think you adjust in a lot of ways. I've learned that like a simple thing during the middle of the season, when I was at Nevada, Cody and Caleb Martin were struggling and they literally asked me and they had one of their friends flying. That was their old trainer. Who's a phenomenal guy. Can we play one-on-one? I feel like I don't, I'm not feeling it. And they wanted to play one-on-one like two nights before we played San Diego state for the league championship. And you go, this is not right. Like I'm sitting in Lawler Arena with these two guys that are, they're the franchise players, let's say. And you're sitting there going, you're playing one-on-one with them and literally fouling them. And, and that's what they needed at that time for their confidence. Anthony Black, who I just coached, he's the sixth pick of the draft. Well, how he watched film was not how Cody Martin watched film. Cody would watch a whole game. Anthony wanted to watch these six different clips and know what he was doing. He could pick it up. And so like how you watch film, what gives a player confidence to me is the number one thing. Some guys want to do the same exact shooting drill. Some guys like a Nick Smith, who we coached last year, he wanted a whole new drill segment every single time he walked out there. And I think you have to adjust as a coach to what gives your players confidence. And yeah, I think you have to listen to your guys as well with their best interests at heart. Every team wants to play, but also guys don't want to play. They don't want to go crazy and play for too long too. Like Jalen Williams, who played for us at Arkansas, like he was taking charges at the five spot. He was like, coach, we're good. We played enough. And so understanding each guy. And then I think when you develop them, 
some guys need development in different ways and you have to adjust. You can't just do this workout for your guards because that's what they do. You have to adjust how you teach each one and how physical you are with them, how mental it is and what type of reps you're doing. And that's part of an adjustment as a coach to each player that gives them confidence. That's not, the number one thing to, to me is this is, are they confident in what they're doing and what you're having them do? If they're not confident in themselves and then they can be confident in themselves, but if they don't like where they're getting their shots or their plays or their actions in your offense, then it's not going to work anyway. So those two things have to fit and they have to be bought in to what it is that you're doing more so than the other team is. No doubt. Thank you for sharing that. It's just something I think that I've been more cognizant of as we were talking about self-awareness, which is we're not Lord and master of all information like we were when we grew up and you had the library or your teacher or your coach. Everything's out there for consumption now. So why are we not mining every resource, including our athletes, to figure out, hey, what works for you? So I love that you shared that in that way and, and actually identified each of these people where you had to do different things with, because that's not something we would have ever considered years ago. It's now we do this. Here's why. And so I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Let me ask this, because you know, it's my soapbox about being multidisciplinary, but since Bo specifically started playing football in Arkansas and now he's back and that's something that he likes. And you said you enjoy watching it. What have you picked up watching them play where you're not coaching them from their coaches that aren't basketball particularly that you've been able to steal and implement as you realign into this new role? What are some of the things you've picked up that didn't come from basketball? The the number one thing that I've picked up in watching my sons play, and it's a quick story, so I'm trying to make it quick, is giving opportunity to players is really important. My son went to Arkansas. I signed him up for football. He played seven on seven. He had never played really before other than flag football. Suddenly I'm going to go recruit. And he is, my wife calls me and says, you just signed your son up for tackle football. He's never played. We're in Arkansas. What are you doing? And this is crazy. And fast forward, he went from not playing to playing a little bit to lineman to linebacker to running back. And I saw these coaches give opportunity in times that were not that it was the most crucial ever, but it was not blow, blow up by 40 points. They gave him the confidence to walk in there and just make a play one time. And then they took him out and that didn't hurt him. It helped the team. He didn't, he wasn't part of the play. And by the end of the year, he was like the most improved player. And I learned from the coaches, like how much you impact their confidence and ability to grow. If you give them a little bit of an opportunity and I know it's hard from high school coaches to middle school games. And again, you can say I gave them that in practice for sure, but they also need an opportunity a couple of times to show that when the lights are on, when the refs are there and there's somebody else breathing on them, not the guy that always does it in practice. And it made me value opportunity for your kids, but also like in my team, I'm going into a scrimmage this weekend. There's a part of me that just wants to play these eight players, but I got to give this nine, 10, 11, 12 to see what we might need at this moment. And I think I've learned that from the football coaches that my sons have played for. And also I've learned that the energy that it takes, football is a lot of station work, a lot of skill with your own group work. And I'm not a, a ton of, I don't have, not always love start practicing. You do 15 minutes of guards and posts. What about what they do in football is they take those skills. Okay, we're going blocking for two minutes. Everybody's over here blocking. This group over here is working on routes and, and speed and agility. And I like that breakdown where there's four or five different groups. And again, we do it now. So it's literally, it's like I told you, one minute of jump stopping off of two dribbles. It's one minute of 
up and unders. It's one minute and it's quick and it's easy for the guys, but football is so fast paced. And I see these young coaches doing such a great job with my kids at breaking down those skills, not so much position, but the skill of what it takes to be in any of those positions. And then the linemen, yes, will go and they're just beating up on each other, but they've learned better footwork. And so combining basketball and football, and I just, I think I'll take this from football too. Like you have to be a great leader in football because everybody doesn't touch the ball and the quarterback gets the ball nonstop and the running back and the receivers don't, and the defense is working on this and that. And so you're embracing different things. You're embracing the block. You're embracing the hard hit. You're embracing the great run, the great read. And so we're in basketball, you're embracing. I've taken that with our team. I got to get fired up for the score, the charge, the hard transition run. And I think you take that piece of it as coaches. We always look at it, but you got to really value every piece of it. in football. If you don't value it, you get ran over in basketball. You just don't score as easy as it could have been. You could still make the play. So I think it makes you look at the game and basketball a little bit different and value all these things that each guy bring to the table. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And as you were saying that it reminded me of something that was going around the Twitterverse today that Coach McDaniel of the Dolphins was talking about, like, you have to emphasize what you want, right? So if you want to run the ball and you need your receivers to understand that they need to block downfield and you need to show that in film, like, this is a great block, not, hey, let's focus on the run, but like the little things that allowed that to happen, right? And I think that's something that we don't necessarily always do, which is highlight the plays that made the bucket possible. And it's this three-step burst that nobody saw is really what created that. Yep. They, just to that point, I really learned that the smallest, minute things are the ones that really win your game. An example, and you can look at all these different examples, but I think it's important to teach your players how to save a ball. Do they slam the ball on your side on the floor and make it go as high as possible? Do they throw it up as high as possible? Do they turn and look? That's really important. Do you want them to waste a timeout? How do you attack the free throw line every time? Is it a free throw X? Because again, last year we were in uh, Maui and we won a game on a free throw blockout. And if you don't have that, in the same game, Jordan Walsh saved the ball and he slammed it on the, it's never happened that it actually works out how you practice it. But we would practice jumping out of bounds, slamming the ball in the corner, the ball goes up, you grab it on your side of the basket. He did it actually in a game and we won a game because of it. Again, San Diego State, he went to the final four. And I think that, as coaches, uh, we forget those things. And I think that it's almost more important than them knowing how to run your play is what they do in a situation when they get an offensive rebound. Do they shoot? Do they spray the ball out? Does everybody relocate like, like Beatles when the lights come on? What do you do? That's You got to give them all these little tidbits as coaches. And I think we worry too much about the play and we got to teach them all these little techniques that I think can really help them. And I've learned that along the way. All right, I'm going to give you one more because I think it's a uh, good teaching moment for both of us and anyone that's listening. So I mentioned earlier that I feel I've hacked certain things in coaching basketball. And so I'm constantly on this this journey for efficiency. And so as the AD, I, I talk to my coaches, I watch them practice, I sit with them, I ask questions, and I'm constantly figuring out or trying to figure out with football specifically, it's what is the start practice and play five on five version and teach from the live in football. Why don't we just play 11 on 11 a bunch, right? And it's not, that's really a deal, but always just asking from an efficiency standpoint, are we maximizing our time, right? These kids standing over here waiting for reps, what are we doing? 
And when you mentioned that, and I'll throw this out there and you can respond however you want. But while we were gearing up for the season as a boarding school, we don't necessarily get all of our athletes back early. So we had a two week period where we were missing some of our returners before we really started practice. And I was talking to our coach and it was like, yo, man, why don't you just, what are the eight skills you need to teach in football? To your point, these are the skills. Okay, cool. Why don't you just set up stations around the field and everybody that's here, because it's about 65% of our kids and none of our, we're missing a bunch of returning starters. Why don't you just run everybody through stations for this first week of practice? That's practice. And it will help you evaluate who can do what right? Kids will figure out for themselves. Oh, I guess I can't catch. I should be a lineman, but right. You're doing all these things. And it was like, yeah, no, that doesn't work in football. And it was like, how do you know you haven't tried? So what are some things that you have tried or you've seen that you're just, like you said, you want to give guys opportunities. Some of these other risks that like you've noticed, or you've had ideas about for other sports or even your own, that's just like out of the box. Like, why not try it? Who who cares? <laughs> There's a lot of them. And again, I take We've tried a lot of stuff. When I was at Arkansas, there was that's the out of box king spot. And so all time favorites that that happened at Arkansas or even at I'll give you one at Nevada. We were teaching how to inbound the ball versus Mo Bamba. So coach had a pool. I was like, coach, go get all the noodles from your pool. And so to practice it, we were, we had noodles and every single guy had to make six completions of a pass with noodles and then we're slapping them in the face and doing this whole thing. When we would work on our outlet drills, we would always work with a volleyball because it's harder to catch, it's harder to dribble, and it doesn't have as much weight underneath it, right? So it's harder to, to pass. Everybody always thinks that it's just like, these are funny videos that go on, but those are actually used, like truly used. Can you rebound a football off the backboard because it's super awkward when it hits the board and going to move your feet and slide your feet. That's something that's like 100% nobody does it because I think it's false. But actually, if you throw the think about throwing a football off the board, it actually reacts really weird and off the point. One thing I love that I've seen more teams do that's not so much sport related, but it's just different is I love when teams are to teach their players to jump to the ball. They put rope to rope with their hands. And if you think about that, players don't think about it until they're connected to each other and they physically have to move each other. Uh, I thought that when we did that with our guys, it really affected them understanding of jumping and, and getting over to the ball. If I would have known what prevent defense was 10 years ago, I wouldn't have lost to San Francisco state on a foul at the buzzer. And so one thing we do here that I've taken along the way is every time you score a basket in five on you do a three-step, get back, you point and pick. We also have different segments like prevent is just like in football. We're keeping everything in front of us. We just scored with five seconds or less. Now it's in prevent defense. Everybody's printing back. You're keeping two body lengths away. The ball has to stay in front of you. So that's taking it from a sport. So again, teaching those guys, this is what prevent is. So you show them like 10 clips of prevent football defense or whatever it is in a late game situation. So I think you can always steal, but I always look at it and go, I lost that game because I didn't talk to our, our guys enough about what that situation was. And now just having a name for it that has to do with football or something else, they yell out prevent and they know what they're in, right? And so I think you steal so much from each sport and mindset wise that go a super long way. But I also think too, like you find out a lot about your guys when they do other sports. Who's going to be the quarterback when you go play football out back behind your gym? 
you'll learn a lot to see who takes the ball the first time. And I think it, it actually shows a lot about your guys with what positions they like to play in other sports. Like go, just challenge your team. Go, hey, guys, let's go pick size and let's go play football. See who's the quarterback. See who wants the ball. See who wants to play defense. Yeah. No, I look, we'll, we'll end on this. And you probably have a variation of this, which you can throw in. But I, I got my volleyball coach to do it two weeks ago. We did it the spring we returned to school from COVID where we couldn't go in the gym. And it was like, all right, let's go down to the beach. We're going to play volleyball and spike ball. And it was like our best practice of the year. And then we won a game the next day that it was a, a toss up. And so our volleyball team was having some, some interpersonal kind of issues and they had a meeting, they tried to do some things. I'm like, Hey, why don't you just, whoever's having beef, their teammates in spike ball, go to the beach and play spike ball for today. And they came back from that similarly thing where they had a tournament and it was really powerful, but it's, you mentioned it earlier <clears throat> about just doing different things. So it's, what are some of those things that you've utilized that aren't coaching basketball, but they're actually still having practice and coaching your team because this is what serves now. You just said it, go outside and play football. Okay, great. You're going to learn a lot about leadership and roles from your team. But I always thought that was something that people don't do enough because we can't sacrifice practice time. And it's the best practice we had. Two on two, beach volleyball and spike ball. 100%. I think the thing with that also is utilizing your weight room as a place for that is really important because everybody has a weight room but you don't have to lift weights. Like I give our strength coach at San Bernardino a bunch of credit. He has something every day that is like team building that is, and he'll put guys that are not normally with each other in those like little drills that we do. Like you're talking about like a volleyball segment. He'll do a drill where literally a guy stands there, he'll yell, go, and you got to throw the ball as far as a uh, tennis ball, as far as you can, you got to chase it down. And how many bounces? And now everybody's having a little bit of fun. They're doing something different that they've never done. You've never been asked to go chase after a tennis ball and however many bounces you lose. Those things I think are really important. Taking what you have, you may not have the football field, whatever behind you, but being creative. And especially, I do think that the most important thing is who you put with who all the time with your team is very important. Have a post player, be the ball handler and have the guard be the roller. And get on that post player about throwing a nice pass on the roll or not throwing a nice pass and have the guard roll hard and jump stop and do whatever, put them in situations that they're not feeling comfortable doing. And that's our job. Yeah, no doubt. Gus, I appreciate you coming back on. We'll do this again at the end of the year, see how it went and what other stuff we've learned, but it's been fun catching up again. I look forward to seeing you guys play this year. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. It's been awesome. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. TeachHoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down a Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at TeachHoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks 
and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you're guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office, and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another electrolyte product. Without amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Last thing, Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded.